is Our American Stories, and we love to tell stories of people who've risen above their circumstance, risen above adversity. And today we have a story of a woman who's done just that and is now giving back to her community. Take it away, Faith. Nothing in the world is worth having or worth doing unless it means effort, pain, difficulty. I have never in my life envied a human being who led an easy life. I have envied a great many people who led difficult lives and led them well. Theodore Roosevelt Trials, difficulty, money shortages, empty fridges, unpaid electric bill, unpaid water bill. These are the realities that many Americans face. Some families face small difficulties. While for others, it involves losing your job, not being able to pay rent, and then getting kicked out of your home or apartment. And according to the American Congress of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, women and families are the fastest growing segment of the homeless population, with 34% of the total homeless population composed of families. Of these homeless families, 84% are headed by women. Now, being homeless can feel, well, hopeless. But for Vanessa Howard, not only did she work herself out of homelessness, she is now giving back in amazing ways, helping those who have been in the same situation that she has. And how is she doing this? She does this by providing free haircuts and makeovers in her salon called Giving Hands. Let's begin by hearing her tell her story. Now, how did Vanessa end up homeless in the first place? Um, I was actually living with living with my grandmother. My grandmother passed away. My grandmother was like the she was like the backbone of our family. She kind of reminded me of a Mother Teresa. I think I, I think I have a lot of ways like my grandmother in terms of how I give. She would, you know, take in homeless people. She would take in just, you know, she she would give the clothes off of her back. She lived in a project. She would feed everybody, clothe everybody, and whoever had a need, she was there. I was living with her. She passed away. Um, I went through some other things that was very detrimental. <clears throat> so that's that's how I literally became homeless. It was, yeah, it was, a, it was definitely, definitely a, a breaking point. I lost my grandmother and then also um, my children's father portrayed, uh, portrayed me. I mean, uh, yeah, he was unfaithful and it was just a lot to take. She was a homeless single mother with a five-year-old, a three-year-old, and a two-year-old. There were many times where she wanted to commit suicide and wanted to end the pain, the hurt, the hurt that she felt from abandonment, from abuse. But she told me about times when she would be crying, when her kids would come and comfort her, tell her that it was going to be okay. Kids understand more than we realize. So in the midst of all of this struggle, she thought to cry out to God. So why was it that she turned there? What led me to, I, I really can't tell you what led me just, just being at the, the, the darkest place I've ever been in in my entire life is really what made me 
cry out to God. I, I didn't grow up in a church background, so I didn't really, it, w it wasn't like I was taught religion or I was brought to church that made me or I was coming back to my roots or anything because I wasn't brought up in church. You know, as a matter of fact, part of my life at the age of 12, my mom and my stepdad was, was on drugs. They were strung out on drugs. So um, I really didn't have any background that made me cry out to God but what I just truly believe in my heart is that it's just you know I know we've been created by God and so I believe because I'm, I've been created by him that what's in me is going to come out so I believe I cried out because there was really nowhere else to turn matter of fact when I prayed the prayer I just said God if you are real please help me and my children after this last ditch effort of praying crying out to God something amazing happened. When I got up the next day, I felt like there was hope. I don't know how to explain it, but I felt like something happened with that prayer and I didn't understand it. And I said, well, let me just go do one more try with the little money that I had. And I looked in the newspaper and saw that they were renting this, renting this place and I caught the bus. And, and, and lo and behold, you know, when I walked in the room, I mean, I just literally walked in the door. And when I walked into the place, the guy, he kind of looked at me really weird, like a double take. And he was like, I don't know you, ma'am. But he says, I feel like you're supposed to have this place. Like something is telling me to give you this place. He's like, it's really weird. But he was like, if you want it, you can have it. He didn't ask me to fill out an application or anything. As a matter of fact, I didn't even call the man back for two weeks. And he still held the apartment for me because I was afraid because I didn't have all the money. And so I called him during the time where this lady was kicking me and my children out at 2 o'clock in the morning. I called him up and, he, and I was crying on the phone. And he was like, ma'am, I've been holding this place for you for two weeks. He was like, you know, you told me you want it. I told you you can have it. And I told him, you know, I was homeless and me and my children are being kicked out right now on the streets. And he was like, well, just if you can find a way to get to the apartment now, I'm, I will give you the place. I will, I will meet you over there and give you the, the keys to the apartment. And I literally had to hold back tears because this man, he doesn't know my situation. He don't know that I'm suicidal. I was just blown. I was blown away. And I had been looking for places. Nobody would rent to me because I didn't have any background or you know, I didn't have a job at the time, so nobody would give me anything. And so I was looking for a job. I mean, everything was just falling apart in my life. And so, like I said, I prayed that prayer. The very next day, I felt different. I can't even explain. I just felt different. I felt like there was hope. And after moving into this apartment, her life continued to change. I moved upstairs and I believe that God moved, I believe that was the door he opened for me because I moved upstairs to a minister and they started doing Bible study with me and um, yeah, well my life was, there was something else to the story, my life was almost taken, I got in a relationship with this guy who tried to kill me and finally got prayed and asked him to get out of my life, he didn't want me to go to church and, and there was a minister that lived upstairs and she literally started um, teaching Bible study out of her house, you know, to me and I would go up there and, and um, so once, you know, he was out of my life and I was able to really, really dedicate my life to Christ. And when we come back, more of Vanessa's story and faith plays such a central role in so many American stories that we put it right there too, whenever it should be there. More on Vanessa's story here on Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and we've been listening to Vanessa Howard's story. She's the owner of the salon called Giving Hands, a salon that offers free services to the less fortunate. We left off with her recounting how she pulled herself out of homelessness. Let's return to Faith and her story about Vanessa Howard. So she got off the streets and got her life back on track. But how did the salon get started? And how was it that she started doing hair? I've always been gifted to do hair. I've, I've always did hair, did family members hair, you know, back when we lived in Wisconsin. When we moved here, it's when, uh, and as a teenager, you know, if I can go back, you know, I did want to always, I said, I always want to own a salon, a beauty salon and, and everything. And that was kind of like a part of my dream. And I just kind of let it go because my life just took a turn. Yeah, so when we moved here is when, you know, the Lord spoke to me and said, um, I want you to, you know, go to school and get your, your license and go to hair. And he said, and then that's when he started giving me the name of it and, and the vision of it and the purpose of the salon and everything. And and so I was like, okay, you know, and so um, um, that's when, you know, Giving Hands Beauty Salon, I actually worked at a few salons prior to starting opening up the salon. Yeah, so I opened up the salon of January 2014 and May 4th, 2014, he told me to start. And I didn't have a clue of what I was doing. I didn't know, you know, I just know what he told me to do and I just kind of went as I, you know, I just kind of did it. I didn't have like a full blueprint of how, to, I didn't know how it was gonna turn out. I didn't know, I just knew. He told me to just have these broken women come in and children and, and the youth. And he said, I just want you, I want you all to just pour love upon them. The women come in and get makeovers, their hair done, nails, eyebrows, and whatever else that they need in order to feel beautiful and confident. You know, we spend about anywhere between six to eight hours with these women. Uh, building them up, building their confidence, their self-esteem, praying for their needs. You know, we have a 98% success rate in terms of the women have gotten jobs and homes after leaving uh, the spa days. And so, yeah, so we do a full cater lunch every single time. We always, you know, we, we, we make sure we feed them really good. We have break bread and have lunch with them and talk with them. And then we start the services on them. And, you know, we try to serve them hand and foot. We literally try to lay the red carpet out for them because they are, although they're going through what they're going through, you know, um, they are loved and they are they are somebody, even in that estate. And that's really my point that I'm trying to get out because I didn't have that support. I didn't have somebody telling me that they love me and telling me that, you know, that I'm beautiful and that I'm special or I'm this or I'm that. I didn't have that. So I want to make sure that doing, the, this, doing their transition that they have that and while Vanessa did not have that support she wants to make sure others are getting what they need to overcome their difficulties that's pretty incredible Vanessa shares a story of a woman who came to receive this service and continued to keep up with them after so most of the women who come to the to the, to the give back or to the spa days most of them come and they of course they're in the, they're in the shelter they don't have they, um, they don't have jobs, you know, um, they don't have anywhere to stay. So, um, so they, most of them interview after coming. That's why I said um, one shelter gave us the success rate and said, first of all, when the ladies leave, they're like so overwhelmed with, so, they said they never felt so, so loved. 
and they come back and they tell all the other women and they say they go and all these interviews so confident and so built up. I have a few, several women that I still keep in contact with and one of them actually volunteered um, with us. She's a part of the team now. And one of them actually got, they got a job and um, at a radio show and her first, her first guest, she had me on. And I was just so blown away because I'm sitting across from her with the same one that we, you know, we helped, we prayed for. We, she not only got, you know, she got a job and she's like running this radio station. And I was so honored because she said she wanted me to be her first guest. And this was the same lady that came in so broken, so hurt, um, had been a part of the uh, abuse in relationships and domestic violence. And, and just to watch her just a couple months after coming here just flourish, it's amazing. And one of the most amazing things that the salon has done for women is encourage and empower them. And sometimes it is done with just one word. There was a 62-year-old lady that came to one of our events from one of the shelters. And I have a habit of calling women beautiful. It's just what I do, you know, because I believe all women are beautiful inside and out. And I said, you know, my, my um, volunteers kind of say what I say. So the, the lady walked in and she literally was only in the salon maybe about a couple minutes. We had just greeted them. I talked to them about giving hands, uh, the foundation and everything. Um, told them why they were there. We were just there to love on them and to serve them today. We want you to relax, make yourself at home. So everybody was hugging. You know, my volunteers always, always hug the ladies and, you know, love on them and tell them, hey, beautiful, how are you? You know, you're so beautiful. And they always call them beautiful. And the 62-year-old lady, I was set her down and do her eyebrows, and she just started bawling, crying. And I'm like, well, what's wrong? What's wrong, love? You know, what's wrong, beautiful? She was like, you're not going to believe this. She's like, I'm already full, and I've just gotten here. She said, if, if the rest of the day is going to be like this, she was like, I, my cup is going to overflow. She said, you're not going to believe this, but I'm 62 years old, and I've never heard those words directed to me. I've never, I've never heard anybody call me beautiful, you know, and so it reminded me literally of where I come from, not really getting that support outside of my grandmother. I just, oh God, I'm tearing up. It just broke my heart, you know, this lady is 62 two years old and nobody's ever told her, she's never heard those words direct, you know, personally said to her. You know, the need out here is just so great. And through these acts of kindness, Giving Hands Salon is meeting that need. In light of what she has been through, Vanessa offers all of us some perspective on those around us. But you know, sometimes in life, we, you know, we stay in our little small worlds and we stay in doing our own thing. It's just about me and mine. And we forget about this big world that people are out here and people are hurting. People are going through. People are struggling. People are, you know, um, a lot of women, you know, are masking with just outer beauty and within they're broken, you know, they're hurting. They, you know, they look good on the outside, but the inside is just so empty and they don't feel love. They don't feel like they're somebody, you know, and so that's really my mission. My mission is really to bring people to Christ and allow them to experience the love that he demonstrated to me 25 years ago. And um, that's my mission. That is my mission is really to build one soul, one person at a time, you know, and, and to share that, that, that love, share that love. It gets even better because this is not just Vanessa's service. Her whole family is involved. 
Her kids and her husband are immensely supportive and have a heart for the homeless as well. And they don't plan on it ending here. Vanessa Howard, in light of all of her difficulties, has a vision for an even brighter future. So this is not just, you know, a give back. It's, it's, it's my ministry as well. I want to, my, the bigger picture for this is I'm going to open up my own shelter. Um, I actually had a vision while I was homeless of a shelter. God took me into an open vision and showed me this shelter. I firmly believe that everything that I've been through, every tear, every cry, every hurt, every pain, you know, it, being a, feeling abandoned, uh, even, you, you know, and not accepted even by my mom. I know that all that has have a purpose. There is in every woman's heart a spark of heavenly fire, which lies dormant in the broad daylight of prosperity, but which kindles up and beams and blazes in the dark hour of adversity. Washington Irving. Vanessa, she knows and believes that her pain has had a purpose. And it most certainly has. This is Faith Garcia from Our American Stories. And thanks for that, Faith. And thank you, Vanessa, for teaching us all about the role and reminding all of us about the role that faith and love of God has for so many Americans. And what a what a life-saving ministry she's in, engaged in now. I never heard anyone call me beautiful, one of the women that she tends to said. Just imagine that. And that's the kind of story we bring you here on Our American Stories, uh, stories we hope that'll make you laugh, think, or cry, and we never avoid the hard ones and the sad ones because right on the other end of that pain and loneliness was the purpose for Vanessa And for any of you out there who are going through hard times, at least for many of us, there's refuge in God, in friends, and in total strangers. This is Lee Habib, Vanessa's story, here on Our American Stories. Our American Stories, where we love to tell you stories about the things that matter in your life. From sports to the arts, and that's music and movies, straight through to history and to the personal. And by the way, from the personal we mean, well, love and death and marriage. Stories that make you think or laugh or cry. That's what we do here. No screaming, no yelling. And to hear all that we do, go to ouramericannetwork.org. This next story is so bizarre that most people think it's an urban legend even though it's very much a true story. This is the tale of Lawn Chair Larry. Here's Jesse. Larry Walters had always dreamed of flying, 
By the age of 13, on a visit to an Army-Navy surplus store, he saw several empty weather balloons hanging from the store's ceiling and thought that it would be an interesting way to attain flight. When he came of age, he enlisted in the United States Air Force with the hope of finally learning to fly. However, it was discovered that he had poor eyesight, thus killing his flight career before it could even begin. After leaving the Air Force, Walters began to hatch his plan. His idea was to attach a couple of helium-filled weather balloons to a lawn chair, then cut away an anchor and float above his own backyard at a height of about 30 feet for just a couple of hours. 33-year-old Larry Walters was now living in North Hollywood and working as a truck delivery man for a film production company when he invested $4,000 in his project, purchasing nearly four dozen surplus weather balloons. Under the guise of being for use in filming a television commercial, he also purchased compressed helium cylinders, a sturdy aluminum lawn chair from Sears, and various other bits of equipment for the flight. Walters even learned how to skydive and planned on wearing a parachute for the flight, just in case. The night before the launch of a short test flight of the contraption, Walters and several friends met up at the San Pedro home of Carol Van Dusen, Larry's then-girlfriend. The crew inflated balloons throughout the night and rigged together the chair and assorted equipment. At 11 o'clock in the morning of July 2nd, 1982, Walters sat atop his lawn chair under his towering apparatus, christened Inspiration One. Four tiers of helium balloons, over 40 in total, rose tall above him. The flight plan called for Walters and his balloons to fly out over Long Beach and 300 miles east towards the Mojave Desert. He was equipped with an altimeter, a parachute, a life jacket in case of a water landing, a two-liter bottle of Coca-Cola, a sandwich, and a Citizens Band CB walkie-talkie radio. He also carried a BB gun pistol. His idea was to shoot the balloons one by one to gently lower his altitude when it was time to come down. Now tethered to the ground by three lines tied up to the bumper of a jeep, Walters waited with anticipation as the ropes were to be cut. But after his girlfriend cut one of the tethers holding the craft to the ground, the other two ropes snapped suddenly. The balloons and Walters and his lawn chair were rocketed skyward. His eyeglasses ripped from his face and he was soaring upwards at an alarming rate. He had only expected to attain a flight level of 100 feet off the ground. Using the CB radio that he had brought along for the ride, he radioed his girlfriend on the ground. Here's the actual audio from that fateful flight. That he might unbalance the load, he didn't dare shoot any of the balloons with his BB gun. Instead, he spent about two hours up in the sky at 16,000 feet, over three miles high. 
From San Pedro, Walters and his balloons began to drift over Long Beach and cross the primary approach path of Long Beach Airport. Yeah, I wish I was a bird. Birds can fly. Airline pilots from both TWA and Delta reported seeing him to the control tower. Walters grabbed his CB radio again, this time using Channel 9, the designated emergency channel, and attempted to notify the tower. They were in disbelief of what they were hearing. Now shivering in the thin, high-altitude air, Walters finally used his BB gun to start popping balloons in order to lower his altitude. Now descending, he aimed as best he could to land at the Virginia City Country Club in Long Beach. But he came down just short of the golf course and headed into a residential neighborhood. He dumped out the gallon jugs of water tied to the lawn chair to slow his landing. But on the way down, his balloons draped over a set of power lines. Left dangling five feet off the ground, the police had to shut down electricity in Long Beach for 20 minutes in order for Walters to safely climb out of his contraption down and into the backyard of a house in Long Beach. He was immediately arrested by waiting members of the Los Angeles Police Department. When asked by a reporter why he had done it, Walters replied, quote, A man can't just sit around. The Federal Aviation Administration was initially baffled by the incident, and Walters had been catapulted unexpectedly and unprepared from obscurity to national fame. In December of 1982, Walters was accused by the FAA of committing several violations of the Federal Aviation Act. The resulting fines totaled $4,000. Walters went on to tour as a motivational speaker after his flight. He quit his job as a truck driver, but was never able to make much money from his fame. Walters even accepted invitations to appear on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson and Late Night with David Letterman. We're delighted to have this gentleman with us tonight. Please welcome Larry Walters. This is a phenomenal thing. Where did you get the idea to do this? Uh, when did it hit you? You said it was a 20-year dream? Yes, sir. Uh, it hit me when I was a uh, young boy, about 13 years old. I was in an Army Navy surplus store. Saw a weather balloon dangling from the ceiling. And I just got the idea uh, to, put, uh, to inflate these balloons. And I figured if I had enough of them, it'd lift me. Uh-huh. The idea was just, you know, the float. Yeah. And I was fascinated by it, and I fulfilled the 20-year dream. But Larry Walters never found happiness. Later on in his life, Walters hiked into the San Gabriel Mountains and shot himself in the heart. He left no suicide note. And that's the story of Lawn Chair Larry. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. When he was a young man, he dreamed of flying high. He dreamed of flying far above his home and through the clear blue sky. I've got my other glasses. I can see perfectly. Don't worry. Larry had poor vision. The Air Force turned him down. Just a minor setback. One day he'll float above this town. I'm A-OK. I'm going through a thin fog layer. Over. My altitude's 1,500 feet. See Marine Line right now. Larry had an idea. He purchased some balloons. He filled them up with helium to a chair they were festooned. And 
just a great job, Jesse. And you know, the thing about Americans is we're always trying to test boundaries. And we love aviation stories here on Our American Stories. And you want to hear a stem winder about a couple of crazy guys who tested some boundaries? Listen to David McCullough on our show and his book, The Wright Brothers. These were two crazy guys tinkering with air travel long before anyone else could get up in the air. These two bicycle mechanics were doing it in the fields of Kitty Hawk, North Carolina. They were crazy. They were wild. They were unqualified. And they did it. And that's what Americans do. They do crazy things in their spare time. We cover those stories. The famous ones like the Wright Brothers. And the sort of kind of famous ones like Lawn Chair Larry. Lawn Chair Larry's story here on Our American Stories. The air can get quite thin. The temperature is freezing. And all you hear is howling. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And our next story comes from David McGee, and he's a publisher of the Oxford Eagle here in Oxford, Mississippi, where we do this show. It's just about an hour south of Memphis, and it's a college town. It's the home of Ole Miss. David is the author of a dozen books, including How Toyota Became Number One and The John Deere Way. He's been a regular guest on CNBC and Fox Business and writes an award-winning newspaper column. He grew up in the college town, the son of a professor, an academic dean, and his son was a star in college who tragically died after graduation a few years ago from an accidental drug overdose. He wrote a column that was heartbreaking and moving, and it was called Four Ole Miss Freshmen, My Son William's Story, and we asked him to read it for us. The new freshman class started at Ole Miss this week, and I wish I could tell them all this story. It's about my oldest son, William, who was a freshman in 2008. He would gladly tell them himself, if only he were alive. With a quick wit and a big, friendly smile, William was an A student in the Honors College in Croft Institute at Ole Miss. He was fluent in Spanish, member of a fraternity, and he ran track for the Rebels his freshman and sophomore years. The 400 hurdles is considered by many one of the most difficult in sports, and William had the courage to walk on and do it in the Southeastern Conference. He led it at Ole Miss his sophomore year and was rewarded by participation in the SEC Outdoor Track and Field Championships in 2010. His Ole Miss letterman's jacket, that he earned is one of our family's most prized possessions. That and the plaque he received for making the SEC's all-academic team in 2010. It was quite an achievement, considering he managed the Honors College, Croft Institute, a fraternity, and track at the same time, and came out on top. Making any kind of all-SEC team is a big deal, I told him. The year he worked so hard to excel in track and academics for the Rebels. It'll be an achievement that will always mark who you are and what you can do. 
I still remember the pride in his voice the night he called me after receiving the plaque for the SEC academic honor on the floor of the Ole Miss Tad Smith Coliseum during halftime of a Rebel basketball game. I was out there with the football players, he said. It was so cool. William met a beautiful, smart girl at Ole Miss who became his girlfriend for four years in college. We loved her. We hoped they'd one day marry. He had friends who shared his joy of music and laughter and traveling the world. He was the same sweet, smart, competitive young man who sang in the church choir and camped at Alpine in summers during his youth. In college those first two years, he appeared to be all everything. And track practice kept him in check most weekdays his freshman and sophomore years. The season ran both fall and spring semester with early morning weightlifting and afternoon workouts, enough to keep anybody straight. On the weekends when the music cranked up and the lights turned low, he partied with so many other students. It was all contextualized into a good collegiate reason as opposed to abuse or a problem. It's the fraternity Christmas party. It's double-decker weekend. It's the night before the Alabama game. It's the Grove. It's a music festival. It was alcohol. It was ecstasy, marijuana, and Xanax. Lots of Xanax. We had talked before his freshman year at Ole Miss about the perils of viewing alcohol abuse and recreational drug use as something as a rite of passage in college. Some people get in so deep in college they can never get out of it, I told him. I've seen it happen too many times. Be careful. William suffered from anxiety and low self-esteem. He tried to medicate with alcohol and drugs, like so many others. He was comforted that substances like alcohol brought him closer to the conversation in social situations. He was considered a square more than a partier. And William hid his habit from many friends, but privately, drawing the line was hard. And one drug led to another over time, as so often happens, sometimes by accident. I'd warned him that drug dealers can't be trusted, that drug dealers know the tricks, like mixing heroin with cocaine to make it doubly addictive before a user even knows what hit them. And it's easier to succumb when the dealer is a fraternity brother or the guy down the hall at the dorm who looks a lot like you. I know, he said, brushing off my warning. Everybody knows that. William was a senior at Ole Miss by the time we recognized the depths of his troubles. He graduated, another proud moment, but he was frail. He'd wanted to go to law school but instead checked into rehabilitation once he realized the addiction had advanced to the point that he was no longer the person he once was. William was scared. The drugs had taken over. Dropping our firstborn off at a rehabilitation facility that cool fall day wasn't easy. We'd hoped the 30-day stay in an inpatient treatment center would get this problem under control and his life back on track and everything gets back to normal. We were naive, maybe just hopeful, as parents tend to be. 
William bounced between several rehabilitation facilities around the country the next year. He was kicked out of one in Colorado because he purchased a bottle of cough syrup from a drugstore and drank it to get high. He was kicked out of another because he and a friend found a way to purchase one painkiller pill each from the outside world. They took it for old time's sake. And William confessed the misdeed to the counselor, asking for another chance, thinking his admission might make a difference. You were right, William told me. My plan was to graduate from college and quit. But quitting's harder than I thought. I'm not sure how to get out of this. We got William back into a rehab facility in Nashville, and finally, progress. He graduated to a halfway house. With a college degree, he got a job at a Mac computer store. They put him in charge of training. His co-workers bragged about his sales skills and said he was a joy to work with. Sweetest young man, they said. Oh yes, and so very smart. I quit my job and took another to be closer to him, visiting weekly and having daily phone conversations, anything to try and help. So I was alarmed one Friday night when he called and he did not answer. By the next morning, when he still did not answer, I knew. The drive to Nashville took two hours, but it felt like 22. I could not feel my hands on the wheel and my stomach churned. Once there, I found William dead from an accidental drug overdose. Our son had gotten off work that Friday and gone to a widespread panic concert where he ingested alcohol and most every drug imaginable for hours. When he got home from the concert, he texted a drug dealer and bought more drugs. That cocaine, ingested just before midnight, combined with the other drugs in his system and took his life. The body can only take so much after all. Eventually, it shuts down. Three years plus a few months later, we've made a peace with William's addiction and tragic death as much as parents can. We were blessed beyond measure to have been given the son in our lives for 23 years. Blessed beyond measure. And that is enough. We have memories of laughter and warm hugs, plus that hard-earned letter jacket from Ole Miss and so much more to cling to. But we don't want other students to suffer like he did or other families to suffer like we have. That's why I wish I could reach out and touch every freshman to tell them William's story to tell them that alcohol and drug binging and abuse isn't a collegiate rite of passage or a contextual excuse. It can be a dangerous, if not deadly, path that is so hard to escape. And thank you, David, for sharing that with us. And That one part just unimaginable to me, that unanswered call where you said you knew. And I think every parent dreads that call or that unanswered call. And the son's saying to you, I'm not sure how to get out of this. That's just got to be heartbreaking. And David and his family have taken this grief and turned it into something positive. The William McGee Center for Wellness Education at Ole Miss 
and they are to provide support and advocacy and awareness for alcohol and drug-related issues on the campus. And he had hoped that freshmen at Ole Miss would hear this story, and we're hoping freshmen everywhere hear this story. William McGee's story, David McGee and his family's story, here on Our American Stories. our American stories and we love to do music segments and we love to talk about well just about every kind of music we've done Louis Armstrong Frank Sinatra Nirvana The Doors Ray Charles Ahmed Ertigan you name it we like it southern rock country blues jazz we did a superb piece on Miles Davis where you heard in his own voice from Miles about his own art his craft and you're listening to the work of Lauren Hill and on this day in history Back in 1998, Lauren Hill's only solo album exploded onto the marketplace. The Miseducation of Lauren Hill was released. And let's take a listen to more of Lauren Hill. Girls, you know you better. Watch out. Some guys, some guys are only about And what you're hearing is a fusion of hip-hop, old-school soul, a horn section, and you're thinking, what is this? Finally, the next iteration of rap. Here it is, in one person. The Miseducation of Lauryn Hill won the Grammy for Album of the Year. The lead Hill to receive the Grammy for the Best New Artist and three others, and she was only 23. The world was waiting for more. Before diving into more about Lauren Hill's career, though, let's dive into how she got there. And we'll be hearing from Lauren Hill herself in an incredibly rare interview she gave with the Academy Achievement in 2000 and to a group of their student achievers. One student asked her, did your mom do anything to give you all of your self-confidence as an artist? I was, let me not even say that. My mother is dead. She's right there. And I was going to say, the belt. No, I'm only kidding. No, it's not. I'm only kidding. I'm only, only kidding. I'm, I'm joking. <laughs> every, every, <laughs> every time I say that, my mother thinks that I make her look so bad. But it, it, no, there was just, 
you know, my, a, a friend of mine put it this way. My mother used to make me sandwiches and not physical sandwiches, but, but, but spiritual sandwiches, okay? She would give me bread, and the bread was encouragement and love. And then the meat was the correction, okay? <laughs> and then there was another piece of bread, which was the encouragement and the love. So that worked, you see? She just dealt with me in truth at all times. You know, no, 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 wait, let me go back. Wait a minute. That's not true because there was this one time. Do you guys remember those plastic shoes, jellies? Listen, I wanted them so bad, my mother told me I couldn't have them because they would melt on my feet. And I was like, you know, and it, it, you grow up now and you realize, what do you, what you said? And that's why I have on plastic shoes right now because I wanted those jellies. And then there was, you remember those raincoats, the clear ones? She told me that I would suffocate if I wore one of those. Bye, you, you, did, you didn't, have, but you know, no, I'm serious. But she, she, dealt with, she dealt with me in love. There was a certain amount of, it was a, there was a, actually there was a huge level of freedom in our relationship um, because we, we exercised choice from an early age. But at the same time, there was discipline. You know what I mean? There were parameters, but we could choose. You know, I remember her telling me stories about when I was five years old, uh, every Saturday, of course, it was on a school day, but Saturdays and Sundays, she would allow me to dress myself. And of course, I would put on, you know, my cowboy boots, like some crazy skirt, a flash dance sweater, you know, ridiculous, just looking real crazy. But at that point, from five years old, she was allowing me to be an individual, allowing me to be unique. We just had a very nonconformist family, a very loving love is so important a loving environment. You know, I really, I, I, to this day, I, I, I can't tell you how blessed I am to know how much love. Lauren Hill would need that self-confidence from her family's love, especially at a moment like this, performing at the Apollo Theater's infamous amateur night and at a very tender age. How old are you, Lauren? I'm 13. Lauren's 13. What song are you singing? Who's loving you? Who's loving you? Well, come on, Lauren. We're going to love you. Sing for us. Pretty rough. Pretty rough. And this is before American Idol. He's a kid, and some kids would have never recovered from that booing. And by the way, at the Apollo, if they don't like you, they booed. I've been to the Apollo many times on amateur night, and it can be tough. And for no darn reason. Sometimes they just feel like booing you. Well, because they're from New York or Philly. I mean, those New York crowds and Philly crowds are two of the toughest in the world. So let's hear from Lauren about her musical influence as a kid. You could say that she was slightly obsessed with music. Oh, boy, I think uh, What's Going On, Marvin Gaye. I just remember, like, playing the first side over and over again. You know, there was one of those old record players. After I moved up from the, uh, the little suitcase record player, there was a 
a bigger record player than my grandmother had given to me, and it was one of those old arms that, you know, when you pressed repeat, it turned and went down. And I, I used to play my records aloud until one night my mother was like, this is too loud, I'm not having it. And so I put on headphones, but in order for me to listen to the records, you know, the headphones didn't stretch all the way to my bed from the record player. So I had to sleep on the floor in order to hear the records. And that's where I slept until, high, until college. I slept on the floor right next to the record player until I was probably 19 years old, really. I mean, I just started sleeping in the bed again <laughs> because my records, you know, that was, that was their space, the bed. And I just stayed on the floor listening to this music. And a very interesting insight into the mind, the life, the soul of Lauren Hill. We heard from her about her mom, about the love of her family. My goodness, we heard her get booed off the stage at the Apollo. When we come back, more of this interesting life on this day in history. The miseducation of Lauren Hill became a runaway smash hit. And we're talking about Lauren in these segments. More after these messages. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Take my eyes off of you You'd be like heaven to touch I wanna hold you so much At long last love has arrived And I thank God I'm alive You're just too good to be true Can't take my eyes off of you This is Our American Stories And for the hour, the life of Lauren Hill When I first heard that we'd be spending an hour on Lauren Hill I was there, really? I mean, I, I mean, she's a talent, and she recorded one of the great records of all time. And we do like to cover every kind of music here. You're not going to, I don't think, ever glean what our dear preferences are because we've done everything from Sinatra to Ray Charles to Ahmad Ertigan uh, to country music and now to hip-hop. And we'll be spending more time on hip-hop. We'll be doing an hour on the life of Tupac soon. And we have some great sound from Lauren Hill, and I think it's her story as much as anything else that's really compelling and here she is talking about music. And is she still, and was she still obsessive about music after she signed a professional recording contract? Actually, to be very honest with you, I don't listen to a lot of music at all anymore, anymore at all. I, I think that's very bizarre, too, because it was such a comfort zone for me. But I don't know if I had my fill, you know, but I don't listen to a lot of music anymore because I'm, I'm, I'm creating it now. You know, everything takes place in a season. There was a season where that's all I did was listen. And now I'm just in a place where I, I don't listen, I create. And if I do listen, you know, there are specific things that I listen to and for specific reasons. I'm no longer listening for the... I, I rarely, I, I don't want to say I no longer, but I rarely listen for the sheer pleasure. I'm listening for the tool. I'm listening for the instrument. I'm listening for the art. I'm listening for... Boy, that was that was crazy what they just did. Yeah, so she's now listening to discover something that might help her create her own original music. But when she was listening a lot, she was listening for really, I think, cover songs. And she found Roberta Flack's Killing Me Softly, and she was so crazy about it that she had to cover it for the Fugees. And this is what really launched her career and got her to her solo career. It reached number one on the pop Billboard charts.
And just when Lauren Hill and the Fugees were taking victory laps with their big hit record, it all fell apart. The band broke up, partly because of a romantic relationship that had gone bad between she and a bandmate. If I'd had it my way, I would have been in the group forever. I enjoyed the group atmosphere. I thought, you know, it's so good to have two guys on stage backing you up. But um, the interesting thing about entertainment is that when you're struggling, everybody goes in with the same goals. You know, but somewhere along the success area, you start to look at everyone around you and go, wait a minute, where are you going? Where are you headed? Because I'm going this way. Wait, what happened? I thought we were all on the... Sometimes success can do that. Sometimes it, it really uh, illuminates creative differences, spiritual differences, emotional differences. And I, you know, just like a, a, a young person would think that, you know, the friends that you, my fifth grade friends are going to be my friends forever, you know, throughout high school, throughout. And it's not that they cease being your friends, but sometimes you just mature to a place and some people get there faster, some people don't. And, and hopefully, ultimately, everyone catches up. But um, it, it's really interesting because I didn't actually make a decision to be solo. It really just happened. I, I promise you that it's hard to explain, but, you know, I had intended to be in the group forever until I found myself in, in circumstances where I felt the, the inner desire to express myself freely and openly without any constraint, without anybody saying, hey, that's, you can't say that. That's not, that's not fly. You can't say that. People won't, you know what I mean? So the only way I could have done that was in doing a solo release. Lauren Hill knew what she now wanted to do, and that was create something original, something different from the increasingly vile and violent hip-hop of the 1990s. I think we all have a certain corner to hold. We uh, Earlier this year, Curtis Mayfield uh, passed away, and we there was a memorial. They asked me to sing at the memorial, and I was realizing that um, what Curtis represented in the 60s and 70s, you know, it's like there's a season and, and it's it's not really about the, the messenger per se. It's more about the message and how he had a time where he had to hold it because there, you know, other people were singing love songs and other things, you know, he had a very uh, political, spiritual message. And even though it was entertaining and you enjoyed it and you could dance to it, you know, there was there was this 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 very heavy value. And, I, and as I listened to his eulogy and as I listened to the music, I mean, music that I grew up listening to, it just dawned on me that that our generation is no different. You know, someone has to hold it. When everyone else is being indulgent and doing whatever they want to do, someone has to be responsible so that that music reaches and, and touches, you know, a specific chord. And that may not be me. <laughs> you know, I may lose my mind tomorrow, and <laughs> but it's got to be somebody. Now don't you understand, man, universal law? And Lauren was doing what I think Queen Latifah was doing at the time, too, with her records, her Tommy Boy records, and Latifah was trying, and everybody forgets now, she's a big movie star, but she started with a hip-hop recording career. She was a star. She signed Naughty by Nature and a whole bunch of other big stars. It was a very different kind of rap music. 
uh, and rap took a turn, and Lauren Hill's music uh, on, on her big breakout record was a rebuttal to much of what was going on in hip-hop. What came, what came out of Lauren Hill's first record that was released on this day in history was an honest examination of herself. Unlike most hip-hop, it wasn't self-praise every other paragraph. And it was entitled The Miseducation of Lauren Hill. Homage to Carter Woodson, one of the first scholars to study African-American history and his groundbreaking book that was on her parents' bookshelf, The Miseducation of the Negro. You know, miseducation, wow. It, it, every day it means something more <laughs> to me, actually. People automatically thought, you know, oh my, she must not have done school. You know, maybe their teachers didn't teach anything, but that, that wasn't it. The, the meaning behind it was really sort of a, of a catch in, in me learning that, you know, when I thought I was my most wise, really not wise at all, and then my humility, and, and in those places that most people wouldn't expect a lesson to come from. That's where I learned so much. And this is a very reflective look at life. And again, as we're going to hear in the upcoming segment, Lauren Hill is turning the camera on herself and doing what artists do in the end, revealing themselves. And again, very different from what we know about modern hip-hop, which is to brag. It's the boast. If you remember in 8 Mile, it's the slam poetry, uh, your mama, your mama, and your mama. And, well, the women, a lot of women, found much of what was happening in hip-hop repulsive. And Latifah did, Lauren Hill did, and I think that's part of their mass appeal in addition to their tremendous musical talents. Uh, And it's ironic that both of these ladies left the field. I mean, Latifah left after working on a a two-pack record. Uh, There was an assassination attempt on his life, and I think she thought, this business, I just got to get out of this business. It's for thugs. And uh, Lauren Hill, as you know, uh, well, we've been waiting for a long time. And when we come back, we're going to learn more about Lauren Hill from Lauren Hill. And we'll play more of her great music. And as always... We celebrate musical artists. Go to our, our story about the song Light My Fire and how it got made and Gimme Shelter and how that song got made and also There Goes My Life by Kenny Chesney and how that song got made. And of course, our hour-long celebration of the founder of Atlantic Records, Ahmet Ertigan. It doesn't get better than that. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Lauren Hill for the hour. Her life as an artist and a writer.
This is Our American Stories, and you're listening to Lauren Hill. And on this day in history, The Miseducation of Lauren Hill was released. It catapulted to the top of the charts, one of the great albums of the 1990s. And we're spending some time talking about her life. We stumbled upon some remarkable audio and the story behind the story of a writer, like the story behind the story of a song. It fascinates us. And that's why we run these things down. And we don't care what the idiom of music or whether it was recorded in the 1920s, the 18th century, or yesterday. Uh, if it's interesting, we're going to cover it. And we don't care, again, what, what the kind of music. So what are some of the things Lauren Hill thought she was miseducated about? You know, it was about a young woman in the music industry and the pitfalls, the snares, the traps. And they don't stop. They keep coming. I think that because I, I grew up in such a loving family structure, I thought that everybody did. And therefore, I thought that everybody reaped the, the benefit of that love. And pretty naive way to think. And so I learned very important lessons about people and their voids. And how when you have voids, you know, like a, like a black hole just sucks, you know, and consumes everything into it. And I, I met a lot of those people. But a lot of black holes, a lot of people with a lot of deep, deep, painful voids who found it easy to take advantage and to manipulate and to deceive someone with me who just, you know, all I want to do is love. Beware the false motives of others. Be careful of those who pretend to be brothers. And you never suppose it's those. lot of that was unconscious creation, un- unconscious creativity, because I was so overwhelmingly emotional. You know, it was just like I, I couldn't, I just had to write about this. Because every time that God navigates my ship, there's, there's nothing cerebral going on. There's very little, you know, there's very little thought. It's almost as if I have the directions. It's all there and it's clear. These, these, these are your orders. Just go forth and carry them out. During the recording of this album, by the way, we learned that Lauren Hill read the Bible every day for sustenance. She told the Academy of Achievement, quote, if the entire week is a battlefield, the Bible is a parachute with a box of reserves like the ones that come in the middle of a war with food, water, and a toothbrush. You know, and she was talking about that void and we've all met those people with voids and what they'll do, and they'll just swallow you up. They'll eat you alive to fill the void. And it's, un, it's unfillable because it's insatiable, the appetite of folks who have that void. After the success of the miseducation of Lauren Hill, she awaited to hear from her creator. So I was going to say what I've consciously decided to do is be patient and wait for those instructions again as opposed to the instructions from the record company. Well, that's uh, pretty sound advice, and, and we're hearing, well, we're hearing a lot more from Lauren Hill here because she waited patiently. Her fans, not so much. 
with the exception of an MTV live unplugged performance, an album in 2002, Lauren Hill has not recorded another album of her own music. He or she is talking about it in the year 2000. I'll be very honest with you, as a musician today, I'm not in the studio right now, and everybody in my world thinks I'm crazy. What's going on? You need another album out. You know, the time is running out. You have a window, a certain window to make music. And um, for a little while, I listened to that. And I was like in the studio working real hard, trying to get it done. And, you know, music was created. Definitely music that I think people will appreciate, but it wasn't my best. And it wasn't my best because there was no substance. And there was no substance because there was no experience. And the only reason why The Miseducation was the album it was was because of a myriad of experiences that took place before the production part, before the creation. Explain myself. I don't understand why. As painful as this thing has been, yeah. Yeah. I just can't be with no one else. See, I know what we've got to do. You let go, you let go. and I let go too. I mean, my whole life at, at a certain point was. Studio, hotel, stage, hotel, stage, studio, stage, hotel, studio, stage, you know, and, you know, and I was expressing, I, I was expressing everything from my past. You know, you, you, you have to go back to the well in order to, to give someone something to drink, you know, you can't, I felt like a cistern dried up and like there was nothing more, you know, and I, and it, it was so beautiful because normalcy. I returned to a normal situation with my children running around, screaming, <laughs> and, and it was wonderful. And I walked down the street and I went grocery shopping and I loved it. Every minute of it I love. I find, you know, even when it's raining, I just go outside, I look outside and I, I'm just so blessed to see it and to experience it because for such a long time I was just indoors. And seasons, I get to her core belief about something bigger than her, and that gets right to Ecclesiastes. And one of my favorite songs, the way the birds covered, turn, turn, turn. It's just a Bible verse. Tom Petty's favorite song, by the way. Go figure. Here's Lauren Hill, who believes that each moment belongs to a season in your life, and you have to respect those seasons. It's peaks and valleys. And some people think that that, some people explain that as good times, bad times, but I actually think it's learning or, let's say, learning mastership, learning mastership, okay, or study mastership, study mastership. Now, right, I went from the top of one mountain. I I mastered something. I mastered something and people appreciated it. But, you know, once you're on the top of that mountain, you have to go this way. But in hip-hop, everybody's like, I'm not moving. I'm the master. I'm, I'm great. I'm dope. I'm hot. I'm here. I've arrived. I'm not going anywhere. And that's what ha- you stay stuck on top of one, on one hill, one mountain, when God's intention is that we study and master a bunch of different things. And so here I am descending this hill, and everybody's like, where are you going? You know, we, we, we're supposed to be on the top of the hill. 
But it's, it's exciting time. It's, it's definitely exciting time for me because I'm at the foot of another hill. So I would just encourage everybody, never be afraid of not knowing. Never be afraid of not knowing. Find out. Because that's how you get to mastership. Let's not be mediocre in our greatness. You know what I mean? Like, think big. Think big. And there you have it. She just stopped playing because, well, she had hit another season in her life and she didn't have anything else to say. God hadn't directed her to say anything new. Think about Harper Lee and To Kill a Mockingbird. Nothing after. J.D. Salinger, Catcher in the Rye. Nothing after. This record was that big and it said a lot of things. Maybe it said everything. And clearly, Lauren Hill thought she was going through another phase in her life, another season. And when we come back, the last part of this fascinating hour on a life I had not known enough about, a record certainly I'd known, as big a record as there were in the 1990s. This is Lee Habib, the life of Lauren Hill, this day in history, the miseducation of Lauren Hill was released. American Stories, The Life of Lauren Hill. And we're celebrating that life because on this day in history, The Miseducation of Lauren Hill was released. Her first solo record, her only solo record. And people have been waiting for a long time for the next one. And she just said, look, there are seasons in our life. And she talked about the Bible. And remember Ecclesiastes 3, 1 through 8. To everything there is a season and a time for every purpose under the heaven. A time to be born a time to die, a time to plant, and a time to pluck up that which is planted, a time to kill, and a time to heal, a time to break down, and a time to build up. And she just talked about God calling her to raise her kids and not calling her to do another record. Very, very unusual. And not because she was strung out on drugs and not because she walked off because she couldn't walk back on. And so here's Lauren Hill on what she makes of all the criticism of her not making more music. The music industry is just a microcosm of the world. So whenever you stand for something and you stand for goodness and truth, you will always get resistance. That's period. 
whether you're in pharmaceutical, the pharmaceutical industry, the record industry, or whatever. Whenever you stand for truth and for the service, you know, the service of others. See, I, I can make money very easily. I could make records that are self-indulgent and, you know, basically self-promote me. I could do that. I could do that. Promote myself. That was redundant, but you know what I mean. You know, just do those things. It's very easy. As a matter of fact, you know, lyrically as an MC, that stuff comes easy. But in order to promote something higher, I mean, I feel now at the ripe old age of 25 that the only thing that I could do is is serve others. And because there are people who have not reached that point in their walk, you know, yes, there's a little anger, there's a little resentment because you, you raise a standard, you know, you, you, especially when you do it and, and you make some noise, you know, and you do it and, and people actually listen to what you have to say and like your record is bumping on the radio and you're saying something that holds a mirror up to a lot of the negativity and self-indulgent things and messages that a lot of other people, you know, but, but we're all young. I mean, I, I have a hard time... Um, being so hard on the music world, especially hip-hop, because most of them come out of the hood 17 years old, having no clue or concept of what life really is. I'm, I'm, I'm telling you, I'm, I'm so blessed to have reached this place where, you know, five years ago, I was so thin-skinned. Whatever anybody said would just, oh, my God, they don't like this rhyme and oh, my songs. And, uh, you know, and then one day I woke up. And it was like my, my skin was just, it was so thick, it was impenetrable by those fiery darts. It just, just, they just had no effect. And I realized that that was a strength and a confidence that only came from a higher source. The second verse is dedicated to the man. Concerned with his rims and his Tims and his women. Him and his men come in the club. And Lauren Hill closes with some advice for the Academy of Achievements Student Achievers. For me now, I'm learning that it's more important to be righteous than to be right. I've tried to be right. You know, this is right. This is an injustice. This is a travesty. I'm right. But I've been very unrighteous and still right. Oh, my God. You know, because you, you can attack someone completely right, but it doesn't resolve anything. So I understand now that the battlefield and that the war is so much greater than what we see before us. You know, I, I live in this physical body. This is like my address, like 22 Eater Terrace. I just gave everybody my address, but that's my address. Fight <laughs> me. No. But this is where I live, you know? But there's something much deeper. Who I am, you know, has nothing to do with, you know, the hair and, and the shoes and stuff, even though I like shoes. But, you know, it has nothing to do with that. So I... um pray for the people who don't understand me. And I tell you, be honest with you, I pray more now to understand than to be understood. I pray now to know, to learn how to love than to be loved because God has given me an abundance. You understand what I'm saying? Our, our enemies are not, you know, they're not flesh and blood. And our problems are not flesh and blood, even though we think they are. I don't mean to sound ethereal, because what I'm saying, I'm telling you, is heavy as bricks. It's ve- very concrete. Sometimes it can sound like, doo doo you know, but it's, it's not that. You know, it's like, it, 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 who saw the, the, the movie The Matrix? Okay. Okay. Good. Then we, we, can, we can start from a point of reference. Matrix was banging movie to me. And the reason why I appreciated it so much was because 
Do you remember at the end when Neo like realized his potential? He started to see the binary code. You remember that the whole world? Well, I'm. That's where I'm trying to be spiritually. I'm trying to see the word of God in the whole world. So every time that agent throws a punch, I'm like, I see you. <laughs> oh, okay. You know, I'm just catching his punches. But the, but here's the trick. Here's the trick. You, you know, here's the trick is that you have to remember that sometimes you can be an agent. You can be an agent for, to yourself. You can be an agent against someone else and not even realize that you're being used. That's the matrix. In order to be used by God, you have to really be used. You know, we always want to be used for the glorious jobs. Let God put me on the stage in front of the people in the Grammy show with a nice dress on. Let me just praise your name. But that's not being used. Sometimes in order to be used, you also have to be humiliated. You have to be humiliated sometimes. You have to be kicked and beaten. Let me tell you another thing about the Matrix. <laughs> Going back to the Matrix is that I was always confused about it. I always thought that, you know, the Matrix was battling the enemy out there, picking them out. I'm going to find those enemies. I'm going to get that enemy until I realized that until you conquer the enemy in yourself, you can't deal with anyone. Lauren Hill is raising six kids, waiting for new experiences and new instructions from above. In the summer of 2015, the world did briefly hear from her. She had six songs on a tribute album to Nina Simone called Nina Revisited, and it was like she didn't miss a beat all these years later. Birds flying high, you know how I feel. Sun in the sky, you know how I feel. Breeze drifting all by, you know how I feel. It's a new dawn, it's a new day. It's a new life for me, yeah. It's a new dawn, it's a new day. It's a new life for me. Woo, and I'm feeling good. Fly out in the sun You know what I mean Don't you know Butterflies are having fun You know what I mean Sleep in peace When day is done That's what I mean And this whole world Is a new world And a bold world And to close out our hour-long celebration of this interesting and compelling life, and I'm sure, I, look, I'm a big music fan. I didn't know this story. It's terrific. I just thought, oh, who knows? She just ran out of stuff. She ran out of material. She quit while she was ahead. She pulled a Seinfeld. She pulled a, uh, a Johnny Carson. Because those guys, well, they quit while they were ahead. They, they did everything they could have done, and they had nothing left. Uh, but she was just scraping the iceberg, actually. 
And she just got a signal from above and said, stop, raise your kids. She hasn't gotten the signal back. So we close out our hour-long celebration of Lauren Hill with her one-of-a-kind rendition of The Little Drummer Boy. Oh, no.